I'm black, you're white. Now what? What if I say the wrong thing? You probably will. Who doesn't? But I'll do my best to listen. Maybe if we're humble enough to listen to each other. Maybe if we're brave enough to lean into those difficult conversations. We might. We could. Come up with some answers. Make some real progress. Discover how much we have in common. And appreciate our differences. Now you're talking. I'm David Conley, communications consultant. And I'm Chris Thurber, clinical psychologist. Welcome to I'm Black, You're White, Now What? And tonight's episode, we're really excited to have with us Dr. Michael Vizi, uh, who is an instructor at Marist School in Georgia. And so we'll be talking with him about uh, his credentials and also some of the challenges that he faces um, just in shaping young minds. Uh, but before we do that, uh, let's talk a little bit, Chris, about last uh, episode when we spoke with B.J. Walker uh, in the Chicago area, and I thought it was a really great episode. I was uh, struck by uh, a couple of things that she said that really had me thinking, you know, mm. um, days after. Uh, one thing in particular was just about how a lot of corporations now are having or hiring um, diversity and inclusion uh, directors or, or personnel, but that those personnel... Uh, those people, for instance, at at a bank, um, don't approve, you know, any funding for uh, people in inner cities and and things like that. Like, or don't affect policy in in a way that really translates. And so, a lot of it uh, can seem sort of performative. And I had never really thought about it like that. I was a lot encouraged, a lot, I should say, by the fact that there were a lot of people kind of, you know, being brought in as diversity and inclusion uh, people. And then it started me to thinking about uh, some experiences that I had with people who held that position at certain companies that I won't name. But um, but I did have the experience that they were there. They were who I was funneled to to talk to about uh, programming and some other things. But they didn't really have the power to do anything but sit and listen. And so I just thought that that was interesting. And like I said, over the next uh, few days, I thought about that and some of the other things that she talked about a lot. I'd be curious to know what struck you about that show. One of the things that struck me was uh, Ms. Walker talking about whether there are systems, whether that's a school, like we're going to talk about with Dr. Beasy, or... Uh, the criminal justice system or even a, a restaurant that has things set up to, um, now I'm going to try to remember uh, Ms. Walker's word, but it was, you know, to to hold them, to, mm-hmm. uh, to somehow meet them where they are. It's another way of saying that, you know, it's not one size fits all. So as you were saying, hiring somebody whose skin color is different or whose religion is different to be part of a group, whether, again, that's a restaurant or a school or a corporation, is performative unless there is also a regard for what that person needs and their different background. So it's not just difference for the sake of variety, like I'm coming up to this buffet and I'm going to get three different entrees so that I can have a taste of everything. That's really not what diversity is about. At least that's my understanding after the conversation with her. It's so much more about 
understanding the the background and perspective, the access or lack thereof that people have had, so that they're truly, truly going to be a contributing, creative, enthusiastic member of a community. You can't just hire them and say, "Well, here's your office, and you know the bathroom's down the hall." Mm -hmm. You you have to uh, you have to know a lot. And this this is where I think uh, I don't. You know, I'd be very interested to know the backgrounds of people who are hired to be directors of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and whether they are really, number one, trained to uh, do that sort of fitting to where people are, and number two, as you suggested um, or pointed out, given the decision-making power, the control, at least within the organization, to to make that work. Make so fascinating. I hope people go back and listen to, you know, all of our past episodes. But for today, we're thrilled that Dr. Beasy's here. And um, Dr. Beasy, if you can tell us a little bit about your time at Marist School and uh, maybe prior to Marist School, some about your background so people have a context. And uh, as you know, our, our format here is pretty open. So you can ask us questions, we'll ask you questions, and we'll just see where the conversation leads us in the hour. Good. Good. Um, so my name is Michael Beasy. Um, I grew up in Chicago. It's a connection with last week. Um, went to school first in Arizona, um, and I always want to be an artist. Um, did my uh, graduate work first in um, Seattle. So after leaving Chicago, I lived on the West Coast for a long time, um, for a lot of years. and was, was on a path, taught at a few different universities. Um, if you had told me uh, early in my life, I'd be teaching Catholic high school in the South. That's that's <laughs> about as far. Uh, I always tell the kids at school when they start their journey, I said, you're gonna get, a, you're gonna get to 30 and look back and say, how did I get here? <laughs> right, right. Uh, and that's good. That, that, that means, you know, you got in the flow of things and, and, and you, you let life and you met people and uh, opportunities came up and you know all that's unpredictable and organic and that's that's how you should be living you know um, so I I've been at Marist now for 34 years you know mm -hmm. what was going to be a year or two um, this was never the plan um, and, and so I'm an art historian by training um, mm -hmm. I teach other things as well but whatever I teach I always approach through the methods and lenses of art history so you're currently the chair of the fine arts department, yes? Yes. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you was what power you have to determine that curriculum? Because in the past, you know, past episodes, David and I have spoken with guests about just that uh, curricula mm -hmm. and that I recalled having taken what was billed as introduction to art history, not Western art history, but just art history, um, devoid of pretty much any Asian art or Australian art. Um, and it was very much like the Western canon. And it certainly, if I'd become an art history major, could have been supplemented by lots of other courses that were offered in uh, you know, Asian art history or Aboriginal art history. but it it the it certainly wasn't the professor's intention but it left me with of course a bias about what art was 
right? An incomplete picture. So I'm, I'm just really curious uh, to jump off of just one of your credentials. Do you feel that you do get to determine the curriculum? And uh, given that it's, uh, you know, it's a Catholic high school, what limitations are imposed by that structure? But I'm, I'm keen to hear what you have to say about that. Uh, well, first, to jump on what you had just said, I, another hat I wear for a long time, uh, which you'll either like or not like, is I've worked <laughs> for College Board for a long time. And, and as a, co a college board consultant, and certainly the, by far the most veteran of the, the art history consultants, um, I've got, I've watched it move through the arc you just described. Oh, when I started in the 80s, um, probably if you had an intro to art history, it was Jansen, uh, right. that textbook. Exactly what I had. Now. It was all white men. Um, and I, you know, when people say sometimes things don't change, they do. You know, I can tell you in 30 years that curriculum has radically shifted. So what began as what you imagine today actually collapses the first two years of college into one year. So even colleges, I think we're even uh, more progressive than most universities, which the first year have a Western survey, like you described. The second year is a non-Western survey. They're already othered, right? Um, but what we've done is combine the two into a single year. Um, and so built into it um, are, well, is the premise that no culture is ever um, developed in isolation or in a vacuum, that cultures appropriate, draw upon, are influenced, inspired by in very complex ways around the world. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's much more authentic, right? Um, and for the kids, I'll tell you, it's been invaluable because as you look in the class, and no matter where the kids are from, in Africa, Asia, wherever, it's, it's essential in high school that they see themselves in the story. Um, <laughs> it's not somebody else's story. And they're there. And so I've really, I mean, for the, we have to know 250, or the students have to know 250 works of art. A true global survey, um, over 30 of them are African art, for instance. So it's, it's not the old, um, like feminists used to say, add women and stir, right? Let's take the <laughs> canon and we throw this in there. This is not a time for reform. This is kind of like burn the house down. You know, this, yeah. this was more radical. Uh, mm -hmm. There are times you can kind of tinker on the margins, but, you know, I give credit. I mean, there's certainly parts of College Board that are pretty conservative, but um, they gave the art historians a lot of license to, to reimagine this project. Um, back to school, you know, it's interesting um, as a product of public schools in Chicago. Um, it's funny, you know, I think about influences in your life. Uh, Chicago is very progressive, to say the least, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, John Dewey's spirit was still there. Somewhere. Right, right. Um, when I was a sophomore in high school, we had a required course called Black Literature. Mm -hmm. And we read Richard Wright. We read James Baldwin. You know, I had no idea what I was learning, right? Um, it was over my head. I just knew in my gut there was something really powerful there, right? Most of it was not my experience. I didn't understand the ideas. They were psychologically too complex for me. Um, so anyhow, to, to say that I, did, I couldn't imagine when I came to the South to teach in a Catholic high school, which in my imagination would be fairly narrow and rigid and have an orthodoxy that, in fact, I found that the world's changed a lot, that books get, that get banned in public school, we read. Um, <laughs> The Marists are 
closer to the Jesuits, I would say, in terms of an intellectual tradition. So we have a lot of um, freedom. Uh, for instance, I've, you know, when I developed 20 years ago, a course on Ralph Elson's Invisible Man, they took time. I mean, those kinds of things uh, have been supported over the years. Um, and, and the other thing I'll just say some chance about the curriculum I was thinking about. Uh, for me, I'll say the one thing I've worked at for years, and we're not there yet, we're not even close, is that schools for a long time bring in speakers. Uh, we have workshops, so we're going to have the diversity. You know, we've already hired a diversity team that's going to come in for the next two years, right? Take an audit mm -hmm. of who we are, um, and how to and make a plan for us to get there. All of those kind of ancillary experiences are important. It's important to have. We have a group called Mosaic, which is a, a student group, right? So they can feel safe with with diversity issues, all kinds of things. But for me, a school puts its money where its mouth is in the curriculum. That's mm -hmm. the place you say, here's what I actually value. Yeah. And so I'd say that, you know, we've done it a little, but we've never done it, it it's been kind of ad hoc. There's never been a bigger plan to say, let's look at the, like what we did with Calcord with our history. I would say we're still tinkering on the margins. Um, we haven't even started to imagine, like you said, you know, certainly in the humanities, some of these issues, race, class, gender, are simply part of the curriculum. And people say, well, I'm in science or I'm in Latin. It doesn't matter. Hmm. I mean, the, all of them have structural, racist, and ethnic and cultural histories um, that we should be talking about and should be central. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, it's slow. Um, what's the old Chinese saying? There's a, that if you ask, um, in America, what time it is, they look at their watch. And if you ask someone who's Chinese, they look at the calendar. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I've always been looking at the calendar when it comes to this stuff. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, it's not going to happen in a year or two. And I, you know, you guys have both taught, so you know that when you teach, um, it's very hard to gauge. You know, sometimes what you teach, you might see in a year, kids come back and say things. Sometimes it's 25 years later. That's why, that's why accountability in education is so hard, right? Because the results sometimes are decades out there, um, and some of this change. So it's a business thing to use business models to try to capture a frame. Yeah, I was going to kind of ask you about that, uh, about what you thought the the impact was, you know, as far as some of I know, for instance, like what you've been teaching has uh, seemed progressive. I'm saying this to, uh, you know, the students that I know that have been, uh, you know, under your care. Um, they they compare that to what they've learned in other classes that they've taken there. And, and yours is considered, you know, uh, a lot more advanced, yours and a few others. But I'm wondering just like when you're trying to teach about some of these other cultures, just like, are you seeing a glaze over the eyes of some of the students? Like, you know, like how, how much, how much acceptance of some of this are you getting from, uh, from students of different cultures, like from white students who might be trying to learn something about 
uh, Baldwin, are you getting a lot of buy-in like that, or is it something that's like what you experienced where some of it's just over their head or, you know? Um, well, like you started, Christopher started, first of all, you have to meet them where they are. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I always think as a teacher, I'm not there as this font of knowledge. I, I, mm-hmm. I have to um, adjust and change um, with every class and every personality and every set of questions. And um, I think, I think, I think they, you know, students, um, first of all, trust you if, if they believe you know your stuff, or at least you mm-hmm. are passionate about your stuff, um, and that you create a space where they can make mistakes, um, and it's okay. I mean, I think that's essential in school. Um, so, so if I'm doing my job, and, and the other thing I'll add um, is, you know, there's some some. Elson's Invisible Man is still my favorite book because it, it seems mm-hmm. to address so many things. Um, but one of them, he's got this great quotation about the absurdity of America, um, of uh, this idea of any kind of purity, that everyone who's white in America has grown up so deeply immersed in black culture and vice versa. And so when you start to show the kids that or where things come from, um, it, it's not like it's us and them. I mean, they, they, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're woven together in much more complicated ways than they ever imagined. Um, you know, I, I've used the phrase sometimes that some of them live in, you know, they live in gated communities and some mm-hmm. of them live in gated communities of mind. And, mm-hmm. and um, so, so to get them out of that, that gated place, um, I can show them that, you know, what's happening in Baldwin or Ellison or other places um, is actually part of their story, too. And, mm-hmm. and it's another angle of seeing their story. I think that and, uh, when students feel like the content is relevant to them, mm-hmm. uh, they they work much harder to understand it. And I'm delighted to hear both that you have uh, agency over determining the curriculum and that it has evolved and a, a crucial reminder for everybody that sometimes cultural change and attitudinal change is slower than we would like. I um, I was struck listening to uh, parts of the Republican National Convention at how the protests in this country that have increased in the last six months were characterized. And, you know, it was very different from how the DNC characterized it. And instead of being protests uh, or demonstrations, uh, it was riots or often described as, you know, violent riots or people out of control. And I, I... had I been able to uh, unmute myself and part of that meeting, I would have loved to remind everyone who characterized things that way that you know, when they were in elementary school, they probably studied things like the Boston Tea Party and mm-hmm. other kinds of protests that weren't intended to hurt people, but that made a statement that injected more rapid change in what was 
in their eyes at the time, too slow moving, uh, you know, a, a change in governance and that destroyed property. And that we nowadays sort of celebrate like, wow, wasn't this amazing that, you know, we dumped all this tea into Boston Harbor to, you know, make a point. Um, and now, you know, carrying signs to make a point is considered to be, you know, you're, now you're a violent mob. Um, and, you know, this this obviously, I, I'm, I'm excluding people of all different races who have taken advantage of a large gathering to, you know, set a tire on fire or something like that. And I, there hasn't been anyone who feels one way or the other about uh, the protests who is endorsing that sort of, at least from my perspective, um, property destruction that doesn't seem yet, besides grabbing people's attention, like it's got a point. But, you know, it's unfortunate that we characterize people's legitimate constitutionally protected freedom of speech as a riot or a mob. And to circle back to what you said, how wonderful that there are teachers at Marist like you and others who are teaching things that maybe have been too thorny for public schools to embrace. But what else is an education besides an opportunity to learn things you don't know and have somebody who's older and wiser contextualize it for you and then tell you to make up your own mind. I mean, it's just really unfortunate that um, there's as much censorship as there is. But um, Well, let me just jump on that. Yeah. You know, as far as Thorny goes, um, I'll tell you that when you're a young teacher, uh, you stay away from the things I, right? I yeah. Mean, after a certain number of years, you get a different kind of gravitas, and they just don't. And you have kind of the support of parents and generations, and you feel a little bit more free to, you know, um, you know, my, my feathers. Take, what's that? To ruffle feathers. Yeah, um, um, and they're a little bit reluctant to ruffle yours. You know, it's um, <laughs> as far as the RNC last night. I watched last night. Um, I didn't watch the first night. Um, it was to me, I, I, I'm, as an art historian, I loved watching it because the pageantry of it um, was kind of Norman Rockwell on, on steroids. Um, it was a picture of an imaginary American past that never existed. Um, but I love that kind of, I'm fascinated just visually, you know, watching it. Um, I don't know if you guys know the artist Jeff Koons. Um, yes. Yeah. It, it felt like if you took Norman Rockwell as a as a, as a porcelain hyper real Jeff Koons, that's what each of the speakers felt like mm -hmm. to me. Um, it also felt, and I got to be careful, but it felt a little bit like a fascist rally um, mm -hmm. with the flags, the columns. It looked like something that Albert Speer would be quite happy with. Um, it made me a little, I was fascinated, but a little bit unnerved by all of it. Um, but I have to say, you know, I, I watch it too, um, and I hope I'm not denigrating or labeling, but that they represent half of America. You know, so, um, I mean, in my mind, from where I am, it's shocking that there would be even be a close uh, possibility, but 
the fact that that's half of America, I have to, you know, and, and a lot of the students I have at school. Uh, I mean, today, for instance, we're, we're on Zoom, right, like this uh, at school today. And, what, and so we get to see the students' world. Um, and one of the boys had a, a giant Trump flag across his room. It took the entire wall, right? Um, you know, and, and I've, I've, I've tried to think about how, and maybe I'm, I'm way off, I don't think that kid, any more than a couple days ago, we took our older our oldest son to Wake Forest, and we, we Waze took us on some back roads, <laughs> and I through North Carolina, and I saw a lot of Trump signs and a lot of Trump flags, and I thought about them, and I thought, you know, I would bet most of these people are not interested in Trump's policies, um, they're not interested in his tax ideas. What they want is for him not to let things change. Mm -hmm. um, they, 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 they are, it's fear. And, and why do I have to listen to um, whatever it is, fill in the blank? I don't feel like I got it. So you know, it's like, I, I was looking and thinking, he, I don't think they're really interested. He represents something bigger and vaster, which is uh, very human, which is, you know, this is the world I've known. And the world is changing fast, and I, I don't, I don't, you know, um, feel like I have to change my life because of these things. Um, so that, and, and the other thing you mentioned, um, you know, I would say that in every class, one of the, well, two most difficult things is uh, when we talk about global art, for instance. I would say for me as a challenge is to not make false universals and use, for instance. Um, a Western notion of aesthetics to look at art from any part of the world. To look at mm -hmm. art through the eyes or through the aesthetic lens of a maker is really hard to do. And so I have to be conscious of that. Um, a corollary to that, going back to what you were saying about protests, um, I would say at the very core, especially with Invisible Man or anything with a, a course like that, such an essential part of the course is language. I mean, mm -hmm. language is, you know, number, I was trying to think, you know, one of the things I try to always avoid is, well, I have certain ground rules. One is, I don't want the students to use labels. Um, I mean, labels capture something, but they leave things out, and they also sometimes reduce people in ways. Mm -hmm. So I want them to argue ideas. So I stop and say, you know, stop, we're not, we're not casting people's, let's say with ideas. Um, but the, the more insidious one that you were getting at with protest is often like in a school like Marist with um, disciplinary things. You know, I'll hear this, that if, if it's a white kid who's having trouble, well, they're trouble, it's a tough time at home. A black kid does that, they're a thug. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, there's a different language right away uh, for really the same issues um, that exposes a lot. You know, language is, is really powerful in those ways. Um, the other, just as an aside, ground rule I always use, I, I really like uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates. And he, uh, he wrote, um, you know, for, for the world of me. But he, he, did, he wrote a great piece in the New York Times about 10 years ago about the N-word. Um, and it's about who gets to use it. And, and it's a brilliant essay about how language always depends on who says it, how they say it, and where they say it. But language is always situational. And we mm -hmm. don't all have the right to the same words. And it's a so, you know, it's funny you say that because I, I really do think all the time in a, in a class, 
how much language shapes their reality. And and um, it's not like there's concepts out there. Those concepts don't exist till they move or filter through language. And so in some ways, at the very bedrock, what we have to do is listen really attentively to uh, what language they use. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, we talked about that um, in our first episode, and we've talked about that. Uh, Chris and I uh, have talked with each other about, you know, that and about being able to listen and pay attention, you know, to that. And I'm always, uh, especially speaking of what both of you were saying, what you were saying about language and what uh, Chris was saying about the characterization of, of the protest, I've been very sensitive to that. I'll just be honest with you guys. Uh, tonight, I'm just very frustrated. I'm very uh, angry. Um and and a bit scared just because I, I don't think that people are even trying to hear each other. This is one of the emphasis for this show. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned by, and you say half the country. And so I will, I will say at least that, but you know, by a society that can, and that chooses to, one way or the other, hijack the narrative all the time in a, in a way that takes away my concern and replaces it with a concern that further pushes me down. Do you know what I mean? So in other words, if I say, I don't like the fact that you are shooting black men in the back or unarmed black men and I think that that should stop. You hijack that conversation and make it about patriotism or make it about uh, you know riots and, and, and this kind of thing. Um, and in any other context that would be asinine behavior. But in this it's it's, it's great politics, and this is it's great speeches for. And and this is what I guess I'm saying too. Like I, I don't understand then how you have anybody who can look at this man, for instance, the latest shooting in, in Wisconsin, and say that should happen. Like I don't understand why we can't just say. Hey, well, no matter what my politics, no matter where I grew up, whatever, something about that is wrong. But I feel like the reason you can't say it, talk about language and what you understand, is because when you say all lives or when you say all men or whatever, you have to first, in your language, in your understanding of it, think that I am a man. And if you don't, then you will be perfectly fine saying all lives matter and somewhere in the back of your mind not think that that applies to me and that that's okay. And that and that and that somehow I'm okay with it. And I'm I'm happy to have you both, you know, here to talk to about it, because my hope is that some kind of way generationally this will change. 
But like the boy who got killed is 20 something, 20. He's not even 30, I don't think. But maybe I got that wrong. But even if he's 30, he's like very early. He's young. The cops who shot him are not 70. So we can't say, well, this is, you know, just some, you know, heat of the night era type, you know, and man, that's all done and gone. It's still. You know what I mean? Like sort of being perpetuated. So I guess then I'm leading to a thing where I'm saying as as educators, and I'm not saying this got to necessarily be at the forefront of your mind, but I'm just curious, you know, are you really on the ground seeing the change in that thinking? And, and, and what are we doing or can we do to make sure that that changes to where you can look at something that should be for lack of a better phrase, black and white, and say, that's just wrong. That's just wrong. And if it were different, if it were reversed, I mean, you know what I mean? That would, that would, be, that would be no argument about it at all. It would be much more socially but, acceptable but we, to a lot of people it, to say, absolutely, that's absolutely, wrong. All these, say, that's wrong. All these cops, or if we want to narrow it down, all these black cops keep killing young or old unarmed white people. Um, and, and there wouldn't be a black cop working in America. Yeah. You would, you, they would be all fired if not, if not, executed to some degree and there would I mean, be it this would, it hijacking would be, of the narrative that you're talking about right I mean, at all this, you wouldn't be looking at at chris thurber and saying well you know he got a speeding ticket uh in 2010 <laughs> so that right there means yeah he should have got shot in the no, back right. you know what i mean it's just like it's like it's, come on with this and 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 so at a certain point i'm just like feeling like like that's why I'm saying I'm asking, do are you seeing any change? Because at a certain point, you just start feeling kind of kind of hopeless that you can be having people running for office that say, "Hey, I'm going to make sure that that we uphold the people who are shooting people in the back." I saw a thing just right quick. And I'm gonna stop talking and and well, and, no, that there was a whole answer, the, the pageantry an that uh, Michael was talking about is, you know, it was it was very focused on law and order. And I mean, like the visual of, and forgive me if I'm reading too much into this, but you know, Melania Trump wearing an army green, uh, yes. you know, broad shouldered. I mean, you know, she's wearing a, I'm sure it costs way more than a military uniform, but that's exactly what it looked like against the backdrop of, mm-hmm. you know, red and white stripes and, the message she she was maybe the one independent thinker you know in the entire lineup but again the message is uh from the current administration law and order law and order law and order and think about what that is that is the hijacking of the narrative i mean of course people we're we this country and most other countries do follow the rule of law i don't think people are arguing that but not once has, you know, a dyed-in-the-wool Trumpian talked about, or Trump himself, what is the origin of the problem? Let's not talk about right. tamping down the protests that are a consequence of the shooting. Can we talk about the cause of the shooting? And lots of people are talking about that, but not the administration and the 
the, the, the rhetoric is from a psychologist's point of view, and then I have a, an art question for Dr. Beasy, but from a psychologist's point of view, just listen to the way that Trump speaks and what he tweets. It'll, it, 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 he'll say things like, uh, people have said, or everyone knows, or uh, um, even if it's something that is, uh, you know, one of his many bold-faced lies, he'll say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure it could be true. You should look into that. Like, but, you know, there there is gold at the end of every rainbow. I don't know. Have you been to a rainbow lately, David? I mean, you should look into that because mm. there could be a pot mm. of gold at the end of this mm. rainbow. Like, uh, I don't need to go to the end of a rainbow to know that there's not a pot of gold there. I mean, I'm talking literally here. And it's, but, mm -hmm. but, but, but that's another way that the narrative is hijacked by these uh, insinuations. But to bring it to art for a second and, and the visual, uh, either of the RNC or anything else, Dr. Beasy, what have you seen? Art is a lot of things. It can be decorative. It can be um, just a beautiful aesthetic. It can be a way of expressing. Um, some art is also protest. And my boys, who both play the violin, it cracks them up to be learning classical music and reading that at the time that Mozart wrote this or Beethoven wrote this or Brahms wrote this, people thought it was so scandalous. I mean, how, how on earth could Beethoven be including not just twice as many instruments, but a chorus in the Ninth Symphony? You don't mix voice and instrumental stuff. Like, that guy's bananas. And, you know, it... But some of it was very harsh political protest, and I'm not a musical historian either, but it's, what do you see now, either in literature or visual art, that might be doing what David is, is talking about and, you know, what upsets us all, which is there isn't the right conversation there or enough of the right, right conversation or enough of a conversation about the underlying causes of injustice to make general people are going to vote on law and order versus what i mean trump mischaracterizing you know joe biden a vote for joe biden is um you know he, he's he's going to vote to completely eliminate all police forces, like silly stuff uh, that nobody would in their right mind, you know, vote for. But can, does art have a role to play in, in helping save American culture? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And just, and you're on the clock. No. Uh, um, especially well, me, when it comes to anti-black racism. I mean, um, the answer is yes. Art's always been there. Um, you know, it's interesting, like what you were saying about Mozart or whomever. You know, sometimes the kids always forget that all really great art was once modern art. <laughs> you know, so so it was once avant-garde. Um, you know, it's interesting hear, hearing what you said and what David said. The, I would say right now, um, I can give you a few, few examples. The one conversation at least we're having in class, and I think the nation is, that involves art, are Confederate mon monuments. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so that's a place, for instance, I can talk to the kids, and it's happening in the news. I can talk, connect to what's in our classroom, you know. And and sometimes you don't have to, you know. It's interesting as a teacher, I to some degree the classroom's a, a neutral space. Uh, it has to be their space. I'm not there as a, you know, um, a public intellectual or an advocate. 
at the same time, I, I do have, you know, a set of beliefs. And like David was saying, I do have, uh, I'll use a really fancy word, uh, categorical imperatives. There, there, mm -hmm. there are things that are absolutely right and wrong. They're not negotiable. They're, they're, they're right and wrong. But I, I think more often than not with, say, the art world, all I have to do is give me information. I don't have to try to convince them. So, for instance, for most of them, um, give them a few facts. Uh, I, I write about a certain era in, in black history. You know, in 1900, I can tell them this fact. You know, um, there were 180,000 black voters in Alabama. 180,000. Two years later, there were 3,000. Mm -hmm. If you want to talk about staggering disfranchisement and the vote and, you know, just to get that now, I had one to it. So I, I spent a lot of time in Tuskegee, right in the center of Tuskegee in the town square, Confederate monument. The UDC, right, the, the, the Daughters of the Confederacy, put these all up. The kids never think about this. They think that these public monuments are timeless things that have always been there. Mm. Well, they, they went up during post-reconstruction for one reason, right, to terrorize and dehumanize. There's only one reason they ever went up. And the, I don't even have to say that to them. I'll just tell them that did they ever look at where they're placed. Almost all of them are in front of a courthouse. Mm -hmm. So not all, at the same time you're disfranchising, you're putting a monument up in front of the courthouse to kind of reaffirm terrorism and a certain kind of power. So the yeah. few lucky people who do get to go in because of grandfather clause or poll tax or writing the preamble to the Constitution, you're looking at that. So, so I don't, you know, I, I could give you examples of contemporary ones, but, you know, things that are in the news that are, I think, maybe redirecting the narrative, uh, that's just one example. So when you when you present that to them, what kind what are you hearing back from them? Are you hearing an understanding of that? Like, oh, well, you know what? Maybe that alters my view on the monuments. You know what I mean? Like, say that not that particular kid, but I'm saying like a kid who would have the Trump mm -hmm. sign in the back or whatever. Somebody who might have felt like the monument should stay. Are you seeing like any aha moments with that or? Um, I, I, at least, you know what I like? Uh, again, this is long term, so I don't know the answer, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I, they, they ask questions. Um, mm -hmm. because one thing I don't want is I when they tune out, start looking at their phone, right? Um, <laughs> the fact that they're still asking me questions or they're listening, at least I'm giving them uh, maybe a different point of view than they've heard in the other places when they go home or someplace else. Uh, they have, uh, again, I'm not, I'm not telling them what to think, but I'm giving them an alternative. That's it. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe, mm -hmm. you know, talk about narratives and who hijacks stories. But what happens is also what gets erased. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm putting back some of those things that got erased. Well, they were made at a certain time for a certain reason and positioned in a certain place. And you should know that. That's before you reflect upon uh, what I think about this, right? You just need more information. You know all the facts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm hoping that that just the the, the promotion of the thinking, you know, um, and then presenting of the facts is something that can help change some of this because, I mean. It's, it's, it's scary, 
you know, it just is. And it's discouraging. It can be very. And I think about my kids and look at this stuff and it's just. I mean, you know, it's mm. funny you say. So last last night we, we sent home the um, yesterday the student handbook. And I love student mm-hmm. handbooks. Um, so Christopher, I, I don't know if you ever look at your student handbook, but they're fun to see the rules and regulations yep. and penalties. And I, I, as a historian of education too, I write about that history. I'm fascinated by those those rules, right? Um, and so, for instance, because we had last year a couple incidents at school with the N-word, um, mm. they decided to do something was fascinating. They put an entire page, so it wasn't told in just the abstract, a whole page of things we don't want to hear from you which are considered offensive. So mm. it was the F-word, that's so gay, you know, a whole list. So at first, you know, I thought, what are they doing? But then I really actually applauded them. It's like, hold it. If you don't know, here they are. And, mm-hmm. and you know, this this isn't going to make you feel much better, David. This is, but 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 my my son who's a, a tenth grader, uh, the last one on the list was, um, you throw like a girl. Mm-hmm. And my son said, why is that on there? And I said, I started explaining. He goes, I've never heard anyone say that. Mm-hmm. I said, you never? He goes, so I thought, you know, little steps. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a little hope. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a ray. That's all I'm giving you. Right. 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 That's all you need. Sometimes that's all you need. I mean, you know, I I I won't stay. I'm, I tend to be in general baseline optimistic. So you know, some of that optimism, uh, you know, will bring itself back. But it is, it is frustrating to say, like I said, when we were talking about language, that just kind of struck me because it's frustrating to say, I'm telling you about a problem and you're telling me something else that is not the problem and that has no intention of fixing the problem. It's another thing that, that you're actually, you know, sort of creating as a problem. Like, in other words, uh, I really want to fix headaches but i don't want to deal with the tumor you know what i mean i just want to, and that's just kind of i don't know kind of weird to me and so it's just like i said very very uh very very interesting um but i i feel what you're but, saying but I, appreciate, I appreciate when i watched the yeah, news yeah, last yeah. night and saw what was happening in wisconsin i mean my jaw dropped. it's you know part of me kept mm-hmm. thinking well at least thank god we've got video you know that this stuff's mm-hmm. all being recorded because it's been happening for a long time, and it was, you know, swept away. At least there's evidence. Um, right, right. I mean, it's not, it's not any consolation, but I, you know, I just, I watched that and I thought, are you kidding me? With where mm-hmm. we are in the world now, this stuff still happens. I mean, yeah. it, it, it defies belief. I, I don't even know what to say because it's so far out, I, but I can even believe still happens. So I'm, I'm with you on that, you know. Mm-hmm. When we spoke with. Uh, John Leggett, who is a detective with the St. Louis Municipal Police Department, he emphasized the importance of community policing where mm-hmm. law enforcement officers are not asked to get cats out of trees or uh, be social workers and do some family therapy uh, if an argument is so loud. Uh, between a couple that the neighbors call the police and instead that 
they are living and working in the neighborhoods where they're also policing and you know what John kept saying was forming relationships and that really struck me just as it did Dr. Beasy when you said there's this human fear of change and I I'm thinking about everything that the two of you have said you know in the last 50 minutes and trying to shine that lens on it because there's there's got to be a reason why the narrative gets hijacked or schools ban certain books or uh, the institutional racism that has existed for so long is so uh, seems so durable and resistant to change and I'm sure there are many reasons but a fundamental reason has got to be a fear of change um, and you know on a very personal level I can say that just in the half dozen episodes that David and I have done of I'm black you're white now what my attitudes have changed and it takes a certain amount of uh, I want to say well I was gonna say humility it's actually not humility like I don't know it I don't think it's like factual information so much that I've acquired as much as I've been um, trying my hardest to be open to different viewpoints and you know I guess one of the reasons why people might be afraid of change uh, is well you know I've been doing things this way and it's so when I wake up in the morning I don't start having a panic attack because there's some predictability to the universe as I imagine it uh, what if um, something changed that really did make me anxious or turned out to be a false belief or a premise that I've based decisions on that doesn't actually hold water I mean you know so it's very um, like threatening in some way to what whatever people's beliefs and lifestyle is it's just whatever their starting point is moving to a different point it's like mm, yeah, that's that could that, that that actually could be a lot so um, you know let's talk about how to get rid of these riots or uh, the irony was so uh, thick last night to see um, you know Trump naturalizing uh, you know oh. a diverse group of did, people and you know Chris Christopher did, did that look like an image of empire Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. I looked at it and I thought, oh my God. I'm yeah, he's the benevolent that. king. Look, I'm I'm mm -hmm. handing out mm -hmm. a slice of bread to each of these five people. Right. Mm -hmm. and that, my first thought was I, I'm actually witnessing a kind of imperial largesse. Absolutely. 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 And there were yeah. some comments uh, in the press, you know, like pointing some of that out too uh, and some other things that suggested that as well. Uh, let me ask you this, uh, this. I'm just, 
I think some of the things we're saying about change, and I, I understand that fear, I think that that's real. But I'm curious, uh, I'm just going to bring this up and then you tell me what you think, both of you. Um, do you think it's change itself or do you think it's the perception of what's changing? Because, and I'm saying that to say, like, do you think if the change was perceived as more in in favor of the people who would traditionally be in power, you know what I mean? Like, I, 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 I'm submitting that I think they feel like a power dynamic is changing or shifting. You know what I mean? Like, and and so if they felt like it was shifting in the opposite direction, would the fear be as great? Would there be this massive resistance because we're so afraid of it? Or is it somewhere in, in your mind, there those people who would have that fear, there's a thing that's like, I'm going to now be in a position I don't want to be in. You know what I mean? Like, hmm. I'm wondering if 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 it's that or if it's because you know not everybody has is a, is afraid of the change. <laughs> you know what I mean? Some people are are like yay change and not change in a way that says now we're going to get you back. It's just like happy about do you know what I mean? Change. Like there were people who felt like when Barack Obama got elected president that suddenly uh, a sort of reverse slavery uh or was going to come back in or you know Rashawn Crow laws were going to be kicked in <laughs> I mean like some kind of way it was going to be Jim Crow yeah. but black you know now we're going <laughs> back on and it and it's not it, you know nobody's even talking about that but that was that was the fear so I'm I'm just curious as to what you think about about that you know about the notion of what it is that uh that is changing that may be bringing the fear as opposed to just change itself. Do you know what I mean? I, I'll, I want to give Dr. Beasy the airtime here. I think it's much more internal, as I was saying before, than external. I, I personally mm -hmm. don't think there's as much fear of uh, new people in power or black people having more power, more black CEOs or more black people in government. I think it's much more... Uh, holy crap, I can't imagine my self-concept changing. And I, and I will also, this is going to sound really arrogant, I think most people who are fundamentally afraid of that aren't even aware of that. It's driving their mm -hmm. behavior, but it's out of their awareness. Mm -hmm. and, and besides education, how do you reach that awareness? Mm -hmm. Precisely. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are there are people like the McCloskeys who I think are who are lionized, you know, by the RNC, who clearly are afraid of the external change. Um, and you can argue all you want about, you know, the people black and white and Latinx and others who were uh, trespassing on a private road. Um, but to run out on your front lawn with a couple of guns, mm -hmm. is, is that is that really the, you know, I mean, today somebody was on my lawn letting their dog take a dump on the grass. You know, I don't have to be happy about that. I wasn't happy about it. They didn't clean it up. 
I was looking out the window, so I got better things to do than go start an argument with someone. I'll clean it up. My dog poops on the lawn too, and I've probably pooped on other people's lawns when I haven't seen it. But I'm not running out there with a gun telling people to get the hell off my property. Mm, it's a, it's those, those clearly are people who are so concerned about the visual. But yeah, I think, you know, it sounds, Michael, like you and I are in agreement that it's, it's this frightening, I would have to change the way that, I'm, like my self-concept or something. I don't know. But how, well, how would it change your self-concept? How would it change your self? I don't understand that part. Help me with that. How does it change your self-concept? Like what's, what's changing about your self-concept? Um, it, that it's, well, what's changing about my self-concept, and again, at the risk of sounding arrogant, is like I hope that for a while I've been on this trajectory of not being too, uh, too, uh, what's the word, uh, like solipsistic, too thinking that this is my world, um, that I know it, that I define it, um, and excluding other viewpoints like we were talking about at the top of the hour. If your education mm -hmm. is not representative, nobody's going to learn everything or expose you to everything, uh, artistic, scientific, and and whatnot. But if you get a sampling, you stop believing in you know the the inherent uh, like rightness or orthodoxy of your own thoughts. Um, you know, people mm -hmm. talk about, you know, being in an echo chamber or something. Um, so I think that the way that somebody's self-concept has to change is they, they have to be willing to open themselves up and have some potentially, you know, threatening new ideas, uh, like be part of the mix. And that changes my view that I at least have a basic idea of what happens uh, when the sun comes up and then when the sun goes down and, you know, everything in between. It's sort of that predictability that I was talking about. But it's, um, it's, you know, I think we all have so much more to learn about other people's perspectives. But if you're really, really going to open yourself up to another person's perspective um, and truly empathize and not confuse empathy with agreement, then I think that you have to uh, get ready to get shaken up a bit. And, um, you know, I was fortunate enough that once I started college, it was a lot less um, parochial than my high school education had been, right? It was more worldly. And I think um, we're, you know, is. Dr. Beasy said, if truly education is doing its job, it's continuing to expand someone's view of what's possible. It's expanding someone's view of what other people's experiences are. Um, but it's, it sort of shakes you up if you think, oh, wow, that's, you know, all along I've been thinking it's this way and not that way. Um, 
But I have to, you're asking a really good question, David, I have to, and I'm going to have to think about it some more. And, and Because I guess I'm concerned about, and, and I, I, mean, I use concern incorrectly, I, I guess I'm confused more than anything about like how, for instance, and, and, and you know what, this may be something more so for you, Dr. Beasy, um, to the, I'm just saying, talking about your experience with like, uh, Invisible Man and some other things that that touched you around high school, as you, as you said, and in, in, in college. But how did learning about some of those things then, like did, when they changed you and how you saw things, did it diminish how you saw you? Like, I don't understand the fear of that. I don't understand. I don't understand. I've never had a fear of learning about other people because I never felt like it it somehow made my view of me or my influence or whatever smaller. If anything, it made it greater. So so I don't understand how certain things that would seem basic to me, like when if you make a promise that everybody who is a citizen of this country has rights, and now some people are saying, listen, my rights are being trampled on, I don't understand how acknowledging that they are being trampled on when they're being shot and shot in the back and whatever is a thing that diminishes well, it's, you it's, to the this degree is what, that you, you have know, to this have is the a research fear that, of it. That, that Kenneth and Mamie Clark did uh, that you know doesn't make it into introductory psychology textbooks, but you know someday, as Dr. Beasy saying mm-hmm. it, it might, um, and may, it's probably in a couple, but um, and that is that. Whether you're black or white, if you ask kids, um, you know, you show them a couple of dolls of of different shades of tan and brown and, you know, lighter, darker, uh, you know, point to the bad doll. Mm -hmm. They'll point to the black one, you know, point to the good Mm -hmm. doll, point to the pretty doll. Absolutely. Like, again, it's their research was so revolutionary. And that study, of course, has been replicated many times in a lot of different ways. So I think that I must have grown up, especially in, you know, Wonder Bread, White, South Portland, Maine, believing that, you know, yeah, the color of your skin, you know, doesn't matter. But just to be clear, I mean, if you're white, you know, you're handsome and smart and like that's, you know, and I I didn't explicitly think those things, but I'm not so, uh, you know, naive to think that the limits on what I was exposed to growing up, uh, at least for the first 16 or 18 years, imbued me with a bias that somehow my racial identity was superior. So if I'm going to open myself up to some new ideas, you know, that, that's fine if it's sort of factual, like you want to tell me that, you know, Topeka is the capital of Kansas and all along I was thinking it's Kansas City. Like that doesn't rock my world. Uh, you want to tell me that somebody else who really doesn't look like me is going to be on equal footing? Hmm. You know, and to be clear, so nobody watching or listening to the web, webinar or podcast misunderstands. I didn't consciously have those beliefs, but I've read enough of the research to know that I would be like an alien, uh, not part of the human species, if somehow I didn't have those beliefs. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is threatened, is white superiority. And that's what I was trying to get to. So, David, you were saying... Go ahead, I'm sorry. sorry. 
I was just going to say, I bet both, both of you had a lot of, and, and I, you know, it's, it's something I don't think I can teach. You're either blessed mm -hmm. to have, and maybe you can encourage, um, is curiosity. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's so, I was listening, like what Christopher was saying, you know, I think <clears throat> there's a kind of curiosity, obviously, just about things in the world and getting depth, but I don't know unless you're curious, you can develop empathy. Um, mm. I mean, I, I, I think you, you've got to be kind of curious about other people and how they do things and see it. And, and I, I don't know how you um, can cultivate that, but I, I think it's such mm. an important, and the other is listening to you guys, with whatever your identity and whatever threatens it, um, you know, I don't know if, if you're lucky enough to kind of reflect and say what's informing that you know mm -hmm. and it's sometimes funny for the kids to hear um i mean their sense of history is is pretty short and when you start telling them the things they realize that these things that happened a long time ago um they're still echoing and they're still informing and illuminating um, their lives right now and and unless they're willing to kind of do some work and look back in themselves and in history um, and have some curiosity about that. I, I think without that, you don't get empathy and you don't get a willingness to kind of change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point, uh, especially about the empathy piece, because I, I hadn't thought about that before. Um, but you do need that curiosity, you know, because that's what's going to lead you, you know, into wanting to know and with genuinely caring. You know, so you are going to need that. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, I'm learning. I hear you. And some of it, you know, like I'm saying, I, I know, I think it's I think it's interesting and I think it's sad, you know, but we'll get through it. We'll get through it. I think we will. And I, I hope that, you know, one small contribution that we can make to people's curiosity is, you know, this podcast, this webinar series. Um, and we're just about out of time, but Dr. Beasy, if you would be so kind as to, um, you know, close us out by offering your thoughts about the upcoming academic year and in what ways do you think, since so much is virtual, professional educators, parents, peers can stir up a little bit of curiosity, which will in part fuel some of the, you know, dismantling of racism. Uh, you know, I, I've always thought that things, like right now, things are so unsettled and, and there are all these feelings and subjectivities, but I, I and I know, I, I look at David, I know, uh, <laughs> but, but I think, to me at least, that means things are changing where things are unsettled and like the muck is being stirred up, you know, it's like, uh, I, I don't think without resistance, you know, there's any growth. And so um, what's happening right now uh, actually makes me hopeful, you know, like things that were taboo or we didn't talk about, they, they're out there every day now. And, and um, you know, it's interesting and, and none of this would have happened especially Black Lives Matter, and I think of a lot of other things, without COVID, right? Without the mm -hmm. coronavirus and the world shut down and no sports and 
no, you know, all the other things. I, I think in some strange ways, it's, it's been a, a, a perfect kind of storm or a window's open to take on some things that need to be talked about. Now, that's mm-hmm. one side of it. I'll say, um, you know, after spending three, the last three months online teaching, um, what we're doing right now is is what this can do, I think, at its best, but it's it's really hard. I mean, one of the things I learned as we've been back in the classroom this week is that at the very soul of teaching um, are relationships. And, mm. and, and, and relationships, that's at the heart of teaching, right? Um, I want to know about you. You're going to do something because you trust me or you don't want to let me down, whatever it is. There's, there's, this, there's this complex relationship and that has to be at the heart of, of teaching. And, and um, that's, that's really hard to produce on the screen. Um, mm. You know, it's, 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 there's so many other factors that kind of almost get in the way, make it tougher. Um, but I can say, you know, this week at school, um, the things that are in the news, the kids are talking about, you know, and, and um, they're glad to see each other again. And, and the things that we're talking about, they're talking about. So um, I'll leave on a hopeful note. <laughs> no, that's good. And let's, ho- let's hope that as much as they're talking about it, uh, their parents and their peers and their teachers are, are listening. Um, and we, we're grateful that whoever's tuned in uh, is also listening. You've been listening to I'm Black, You're White, Now What? with me, Chris Thurber, and David Conley. We've been speaking today with Dr. Michael Beasy, who's chair of the Fine Arts Department at Marist School in Georgia. Uh, Dr. Beasy, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you. I thank you, Dr. Beasy. Good seeing you, David. Appreciate you. Nice meeting you, Christopher. Likewise. Thank you for listening to I'm Black, You're White, Now What? You can find more episodes on the podcast channel, Teaching What It Takes, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. To learn more about the work I do, visit www.preparingthepath.com. And to learn more about the work I do, visit drchristhurber.com.